started the service with the statement that this is a season of expectation and anticipation. It's a season that we anticipate and we look forward to as children all year long. We start making our list earlier, but it's deeper and wider than that. It's, it's more meaningful than that. It's, it's also a season of promise. And right built into that expectation, built into that is this hope, this idea, this dream, this, that something will happen. What is the promise, though? We're going to be looking at a promise that is 700 years before Jesus walked the earth. A promise that he would come 700 years before he ever came. And, you know, really what a promise is, is it's, it's built on a person's character. It's built on who gives the promise. As children, we make promises all the time. Well, I'll do this if you'll do that, or I will clean my room, and things like that, promises that are broken. 24 years ago next month, Lori and I made a promise to one another. And we believe in that promise because of the character of the person that we would give ourselves solely to each other and we would do that for the rest of our life for 24 years next month. But promises, they, they produce something in us. They require something of us. They require faith. Promise gives birth to faith. The idea that, that there's a promise out there that then I have to have faith in that promise. And then from that faith, Faith will produce hope. It's not just hope in the random, hope in, in, in the ethereal, hope in the idea, hope in the dream. It's hope based back on the promise. Hope in hope is not enough, but hope built on a promise. Hope is what gives a person that has cancer the hope that they can live another day. A person who doesn't have a job to send out that resume one more time. That person who's experience that near fatal accident to be able to stay on their knees a little bit longer because there's promise, there's faith, there's hope that there will be deliverance, hope and faith. We're going to have those in this season and we're going to talk about them, but it's not going to be just about this little babe born in a manger. We're going to actually share stories of the Christmas that is not a, not a one-day event year, but it's actually one day that affects every day of our life. That Jesus is a, is a gift that, that truly ripples into the other 365 days of the year that really makes an impact, or 64 days of the, of the year, because of that one day. And we're going to have people come and share. And this is a series of messages that has been brewing in my heart, and we've been preparing for, well, I've been preparing at least for since the summer when we're not even thinking about Christmas, but this series came to me. And I thought, I want our people to see from our people that hope is real, that the promise is real, and that they have personally, intimately, experientially, they have encountered Jesus Christ in the most amazing ways. And I when these people come and share, they're going to stand right here in the big lights and you're going to be there looking at them. It's going to be a bit intimidating. And none of the people that will stand here want to stand here. None of them want to stand here and have to give testimony that is some quite raw because it's only a few months away because of what led up to that circumstance and because what they're going through even now. But they're going to share how Jesus Christ the promised one has been real to them and they have experienced him. 
So when you see them come, you pray for them. And when they share, you identify with them. And you walk with them as they share their life. This is about a promise that we have to have faith in that will give us hope throughout the rest of our lives. Let's continue to worship. One Sunday morning, about three and a half years ago, I woke up, headed upstairs to my son's room, and I said, Parker and Cooper, let's get up and get ready to go to church. My son informed me that he wasn't going to church and that he hated God and he hated church. It was at that moment I knew I had a real serious problem in my home. And looking back, that moment brought me to my knees emotionally. So you're wondering, how could it really come to that point? Well, I grew up in the church, went to Sunday school, went to Sunday evening, went to Wednesday evening services, and I never missed a beat. But I slowly but surely fell away. It's just the classic example. Slips up on you before you ever know it. I didn't pray to God. I didn't think about God. I didn't read the Bible at all. And I never needed God unless it was super convenient for me. So during my college years, I met my, or married my wife. She was my high school sweetheart, my best friend. And I know that God's spirit was, you know, leading me in the right direction. We had the opportunity to have some children. In 2006, we had Parker. 2007, we had Cooper. And in 2010, we had our little Emmy Grace. And as they grew older, I started thinking about how church helped me as a young kid just be a good kid and, and hang out with the right crowd. And so my wife and I knew at that time we needed to find a church for the kids. And I've got to say, I wasn't that enthused about going for me. You see, it was for the kids' sake and not really me. So my wife had heard about Grace Point Church and she and Lori had been friends in high school and I had remembered Lori after further conversation. And my wife was telling me about Mike and how he had played basketball for the Mounties. And I was racking my brain trying to remember who was Mike McDaniel. Well, he had given up basketball the year before we would have played on the varsity team together. So we had Mike and Lori in common. And remember, I wasn't going for, the, for me, it was for my kids. So at that point, just that common bond with Mike and Lori was enough for me. So I said, okay, let's give Grace Point a chance. So we came and sat in our first service at Grace Point. Band was playing. People were raising their hands, praising God. And Jared was bouncing around here on the stage. And quite frankly, I wouldn't have been surprised if somebody would have done a backflip down the, the aisle. And all those things on a very serious note to me in my heart at that time, it was just blasphemous. You see, because I came from an ultra, ultra conservative church and none of those things 
were allowed. So as critical as I was in my mind thinking about all the things that we were doing wrong here, I got through the service. My wife and I walked out and picked up our kids at Wee World. And I said, you know, guys, how was it? They said, well, it was fun, Dad. It was good. And that's all I needed to hear. So that was enough to get me back. And now I know that that was God's Spirit pulling me back to Him. Message after message over the next couple of months, I found myself sitting right where you are, tears welling up in my eyes, tears running down my cheeks. Because I was a man with so many battles, so many secrets, some of which my wife didn't even know about. And those deep inside were hurting me. So many of the things Mike had talked about in his last series. So I knew at that point I needed to make a change. And so I gave my life back to Christ. On October 14th, 2012, I was baptized. So now go back to that Sunday morning with me. Here's my boy Parker saying he hates church. He hates God. I was amazed and just devastated that he even said that. So now I'm happy to say that through the grace of God, just this last August 14th, my son Parker gave his life to Jesus Christ. And it's going to be with all the joy that my heart can hold. That the boy who said he hated God and hated church is going to be with me right down here in the baptismal on December 28th and I'm going to baptize him into obedience. Now let me tell you, two years makes a huge difference. I'm a living example of that. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, he is wonderful. Our God is wonderful. And if you'll let him in, he can be wonderful for you too. 700 years before Christ ever breathed his first breath on the earth, there was a promise that was given. And in that promise, it was not fulfilled for 700 years. How patient are you with the promises of God? Can you wait 700 years for them to be filled, fulfilled and become a reality? But it was a very dark, dark, dark time in the nation of Israel in which the, through the nation of Israel that God would send his son Jesus. He had to choose some nation. And he chose the nation of Israel and, and he would bless all the nations of the world. And it was 700 years prior to that, what was going on in Israel? They were divided. They were a divided nation. They were divided families. They were divided in where they lived. They were under Assyrian exile. They had been under Babylonian exile. It was absolutely a nation in ruins. It was a, it was a nation falling apart. And, and in this state of existence that they were, God raised up a prophet. 
And this prophet's name was Isaiah, and Isaiah was sent to his own people to give them this beautiful, wonderful, powerful message that there is coming a Messiah. Messiah was the Hebrew word for the anointed one. It's used for the king. A king would come, and this king would be absolutely amazing. And he would rise heads and shoulders above all other kings and kingdoms that have ever existed. This was the promise. And in Isaiah chapter 9, where we'll be in a few moments, you can begin to find that. We find in the first part of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 1 to chapter 12, kind of the first section of a book within a book. And some have called it the Emmanuel book. Because it's in this chapter, in those first 12 chapters, that you find the prophecies looking forward to projecting out the promises of a coming king. That for, again, I keep emphasizing this, for the next 700 years, they're going to have to wait for. And in this 700 BC time period, we come to chapter 9. And so I want to look at that together today, because this will be where we will be for the next five gatherings. Right up to Christmas Eve night, we're going to finish this out. And so we're going to look literally at one verse for the next five meetings together. And in this one verse, we're going to peel back and look at and look deeply at how Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of this promise given 700 years ago. And no other person can fulfill this. So if you're a skeptic today, if you're a questioner today, if you're an agnostic today, if you just struggle with Jesus being God today, then I understand that this is a perfect series of messages for you. Because there is absolutely no way that any one person outside of Christ could fulfill all of the qualities that we will look at today. And so let's begin reading in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 1. You follow along as I read. And there will be no gloom. Now they were living in a state of gloom at this point. For her uh, who was in anguish in the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zeb. Zeb now, I'm not going to say that again because I'll butcher it again. In the land of Naphtali, that one either. But in the latter time, he was made glorious in the days of the sea in the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Like, okay, I'm lost in that. I get it. Just hang with me on that because what you're going to find, and you can, if you have your hard copy Bible with you, you can kind of put this note out in the margin of your Bible, but put Matthew chapter 4, verse 13 to 15, because we find the prophecy of verse 1 fulfilled, and they're pointing to this man named Jesus. He's coming, he's going to go to this area, that area there, and he's going to go there, and where is that area? That area is northern Galilee just on the northern tip of the, of the Sea of Galilee, where Capernaum and all that area is. That's where this king is going to be. That's where you will find him. And that's exactly where Jesus spent most of his time doing most of his ministry was in the Galilee region. And we're going to look in a few moments at the city of Capernaum, which was the town in Galilee that he did most of the time, most of his ministry in that single city alone. But now we pick up in verse 2. In verse 2, it's like a modern day, uh, or excuse me, like, a, like a, 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 a historical day birth announcement, all right? Literally, the way it's written and you look at historical documents, you find the similarities of a birth announcement of the 
period of time in which we're looking at and 700 B.C. and the period of time in which we are today, it would be a comparable thing. So the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land in deep darkness on them has light shined. You've multiplied the nations. You have increased its joy. Rejoice before you as with joy of the harvest. And they are glad when they divide the spoil for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor are broken as on the day of Midian. Now I know this gets into a lot of Hebrew poetry. And we're not going to break down Hebrew poetry today. Aren't you glad of that? All right, but here, verse 5. For every boot uh, of the trampling warrior in the battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned in the fuel for the fire. This is going to be a new day that's going to come here. Now, here's where he gives the promise. For to us, a child is born. A child will be physically born into this world. It speaks of the humanity of Christ. But the next phrase speaks of the deity of this coming Messiah. For to us a son will be given. Almost as if he's always existed, has always been there. There will be a, a child born. At the same time, there will be a son given. And when you look at the story of Christ and who he is, that, that Christ is both God and he is man and he is man and he is God and he's as much man as he is God, as much God as he is man, it blows my mind. I can't explain it today. But what we have here is that, that very prophecy, that very promise being given to us that a child will be born, a son will be given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. He will feel great weight, great conversations about kingdoms will be centered around this young child. And as we know, the number one topic that Jesus talked on more than any other single topic in all of his speeches and talks and writings was the kingdom of God. Now we come to the next part. And his name, you want to know what his name's going to be, what his character's going to be, how you'll know him when you see him? His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Now, again, you look at that passage of Scripture and you find commas in there. If I had a copy of the Hebrew text, and I'll try to impose that next week in here, you'll not find commas. You don't find commas in the Greek. You don't find commas in the Hebrew. That's self-imposed. So is Jesus wonderful counselor? Or as I'm going to propose today, I believe that these are individual qualities. He is wonderful. He is counselor. Some of these are linked together. He is mighty God. He is everlasting Father. He is Prince of Peace. But I put a comma between wonderful and counselor, as do other scholars, so I'm not taking my own liberties here. And even if you were to combine them together, they're not, uh, they're not compromising the Scriptures. But we're going to look today, and we're going to look over the next fr- th- uh, several meetings together at his wonderful, how he's a counselor, how he's a mighty God, and we're going to break these down. Because I want you to see, for 700 years... They were waiting, and they were waiting, and they were waiting for this wonderful counselor, for this mighty God, for this everlasting Father, for this Prince of Peace. They were waiting, and they were waiting, and they were waiting. And there's not another king that measured up to all these qualities, all these attributes, that he was both wonderful and he was an everlasting Father, and he was a Father. He was a God. At the same time, he was a Prince of Peace. 
This only can be a deity. 700 years before he ever came to this earth, they were looking for him to come. Today, as we launch into this series, I want us to focus on the fact that Jesus is wonderful. The problem is, as I'm afraid for many of us, he's not wonderful. He's just a religious figure. He's just an element out there. He's just somebody that we come and we tip our hat to on Sunday mornings. But I want us to propose to you today that he is wonderful. I'm afraid some of us may have lost the wonder in it. When you look at Monty's story, and Monty has given me freedom to share everything that I'm sharing with you today, and we've gone through this and we've worked through this over the past years that they've been at Grace Point, and it has been a lengthy process that we have had lots of meetings together and text conversations together and sidebar conversations. But for 25 years in Monty's life, the wonder of God was gone. That excitement about God, the joy of God, the, the, the awe of God, the amazement of God, the astonishment of God was gone. And, and he was living his own American dream life, becoming a nurse anesthetist, beca- developing a family, uh, growing up his life, and just living the American dream. Until one day he wakes up his child, and all of a sudden, the faith that he grew up in, going to church on Wednesday night, Sunday morning, and living it, and protecting his life, and guiding his life, all of a sudden the faith was being was gone was vanished see we in the next generation see we are all one generation away from christianity being extinct and whether or not we we are caught up in the wonder of god and whether we are amazed by god will largely determine whether our children are amazed by god the next generation is in wonder of god i wonder today have you lost your wonder Have you lost your amazement? See, at the root word of wonderful is the word wonder. At the very root of it is is the fact that I'm going to, this Jesus, this Messiah who's been promised to us, that was promised from Isaiah, that's promised to us in our own lives. If there's not wonder, do I really know him? Or have I lost him? What makes Jesus wonderful? Take your Bibles now. We've been in the Old Testament. We're going to skip over to the New Testament. And we're going to skip forward 700 years, 700, nearly 800 years. And we're going to read from the crypt notes of the Gospel, if you will, the Gospel of Mark. He is very succinct and very short in in how he shares. And we're going to look at Mark chapter 1. And we're going to see a story where we're going to see again and again and again the wonder, the amazement, the astonishment of God. In Jesus Christ. And I hope today that in this series of messages and and today you will begin to see an awakening in your soul. That there will be a renewal in your spirit for who Jesus Christ is. That we'll not just live another Christmas season throwing tinsel and trees and gifts around that we will literally stop and there will be an awe and there will be an amazement there will be a wonder, there will be the wonderful Savior and who He is. Now, we find Him in the city of Capernaum. Again, I mentioned that was the the primary city in the Galilee region that He did ministry. And we find Him here doing ministry on the northern banks of the Sea of Galilee. But in this story that we're about to read, we're going to see where wonder and amazement and astonishment are the rule of the game. The rule of the day. We're going to see through three different angles and three different lenses, if you will, how wonder of Jesus 
becomes and should be also in our life. So let's begin reading in verse 21 uh, of chapter 1. And they went to Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, this is Saturday morning, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. Very common practice of Christ wherever he went. And they were what? Astonished. They were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. They were used to the scribes teaching them. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. Now we'll talk about that in detail in a moment. But I think you can imagine for a moment it's a demon-possessed individual. And this demon-possessed man began to speak. And the demon began to speak through this man. And he cried out. He says, what have I to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, we'll come back to that. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, notice he didn't answer his question because Jesus doesn't have to answer to demonic spirits. Jesus doesn't have to answer to the dark side. He rules over the dark side. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were what? All amazed. So they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. We have the story of Jesus, and he's in the synagogue. It's a Sabbath day, and all of a sudden we start seeing in the eyes and the hearts of the people the wonder, the amazement, the astonishment of Christ. Let me ask you again what I asked in the beginning. Have you lost the wonder, the wonder, the amazement, the astonishment of Christ? Or does he still wow you? Does he still woo you? Does he still amaze you? Is he still at work in your life in such a dynamic way that you, you sit on the edge of your seat every day of your life just waiting? When's God going to show up again? Or is God just silent? I want to propose to you that Jesus wants to be wonderful in your life. He wants to be the wonder of your life. There are three wonders that show Christ is wonderful in this passage. You find it, number one, that Christ makes sense of life through his words. That's a part of the wonder Jesus is teaching in the synagogue. And what happens? They were astonished. You find this again and again throughout the scriptures. This is not a one time, one and done. Jesus had some kind of sugar stick sermon, and it was just one, and that's all he had. He had... Every time he spoke, there was astonishment. Matthew 7, 28, Jesus finished these sayings, and the crowds were what? Astonished at his teaching. And he went to Nazareth. That was his hometown. And when he taught there in the synagogue, everyone was amazed and said, where does he get his wisdom and the power to do miracles? See, they remembered Jesus when he had pimples on his face. They remember Jesus when he used to walk the streets. They remember Jesus because this is where Jesus grew up. And now Jesus has this amazing depth of insight about life. And people are leaning in and they're wanting to know where did he get it? Where did he learn it? How did he attain this? Where did it come from? I went to the same school with this boy. Where did he get what he has? Matthew 13, 54 uh, is where it spends, means that Matthew twenty two twenty two says this, And when he heard it, they marveled and left him. 
and went away. There was a marvel. They were astonished at his teaching in Matthew 22, 33, just a few verses later. Matthew 27, 14, he gave uh, no answer, not even a single charge. This is when Jesus was on trial. And in Matthew 27, 14, he didn't even speak. And all of a sudden, people were astonished. They were greatly amazed. The governor was greatly amazed. Jesus could talk, and they were amazed. Jesus wouldn't say a word, and they would be amazed. Just his nonverbals would create amazement and astonishment. Where are you going with all this? Jesus Christ, with his words of wisdom, with his truth, will change your life. This word astonished, and you find it there in verse 21 and 22 again. This word astonished is what one commentator said, to become astounded in such a degree that, that you nearly lose your composure. When was the last time, let me ask you this, you were sitting in, the, in, in, the, in your own sacred place, and you had a copy of God's Word open, and literally God couldn't be speaking any louder to you than if He was in the room. And for, for some of you, it's never happened. I've never experienced that. When was the last time you were sitting in a service like this, either at this church or some other church somewhere down the road, and all of a sudden it was like you and the pastor, the teacher, was the only person in the room? You were at camp as a, as a youth growing up, and it was, like, it was like God was zeroing in on you, and he was talking to no one else, and you heard it, and it was you and God face to face, and you were listening, and you were blown away. You had lost composure for a moment. You thought it was all about you, and it was all God was teaching and working in your life. Listen, that's the wonder of God. That's the wonder of Christ. That's the wonder of his truth. And when Christ speaks... It makes sense. Life makes sense. It comes together. That's why when you come in here sometimes and God begins to work in people's lives, it's not because of me. Golly, man, if you only knew me, I'm not capable. I'm a, I'm a dyslexic guy who barely made it out of high school. And I stand up here, and it's not me Guys, it's me taking this book and opening it up the best I can, trying to say this is what it says. And the real wonder is not me. The real wonder of making sense of life is God speaking into you, wanting to change your life. And I know I've been in the churches where it's dull and dead, and one of my favorite professors growing up was Howard Hendricks, and he said, too many preachers are embalming people with truth instead of exciting them with the, with the truth. God forbid that that would happen here or any other church. Doctors make mistakes and people are buried. Lawyers make mistakes and they're in prison. Accountants make mistakes and they're written off. Dentists make mistakes and they're pulled. Plumbers make mistakes and they're stopped. Electricians make mistakes and they're shocked. Printers make mistakes and they're reprinted. Teachers make a mistake and they're never erased. It's not just me. It's not just because I'm standing here today. Everybody who's a follower of Christ today has been called to be a reproducer, to become a teacher, to become a transfer of the faith. You're not just a receiver here today. Jesus and the Great Commission, we all know the Great Commission because we say it a lot around here. But in Matthew 28, 19 and 20, who we're told to go and make disciples of all nations. We get that, okay? We talk about that. We go there. We, we emphasize that. But what are we to do when we get there? Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. 
We have all been called to be proclaimers of his truth, teachers of his truth. This truth changes lives. At the same time, I get it. It's intimidating, isn't it? I mean, how much time do you spend in a week in this book? Whether it's on your screen or it's in a hard copy. 92% of Americans own Bibles. Do you know that? But when you ask them, how many of you read it on a daily basis? Only about 24% read it on a daily basis. I, I want to ask you today, how many of you, how often do you how often do you read the scriptures? I want to take a survey literally right now. And I want you to take out your, your phones, your smartphones. If you have a flip phone, it probably won't work. So I, I, this is from the first service, the studies, okay? I want you to text in this number, 22333, and I want you to answer this question. How often do you read the scriptures? All right? You can text. If you read it seven days a week, every day you're up reading the Word, I want you to type in 5780 into that little line, and I want you to send that in. Tim, is this live? All right. I want, I want, I want, I want them to see their answers. All right? If you, if you got five days a week, uh, then you type that in. If, you, if you're a three-day-a-weeker, if you're a one-day-a-weeker, that means you come and bring it here on Sunday. That's fine. I'll count today, all right? You're here. You got your little tablet open, or you're texting, or you're reading your Bible right now. Um, and, or if, 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 be honest, I just don't do it. I, I don't, I'm not going to have a, a, the app on my Bible. I'm on, on my phone. I want you to answer that. No, I'm not, we don't have these numbers, and we're not going to flunk you out of the church if you, didn't, if you didn't pass the Bible test, all right? But... The reality is, is a lot of people are intimidated by this book. And that's a move of Satan. That is a work of Satan. That he would intimidate you. I don't understand it, so we don't read it. We put it on the shelf and we forget about it. But where were people amazed? Where do people get the wonder of God? Where do people get blown away by God? They get blown away by his teaching. But yet if we're not in his teaching, then we're never going to see the wonder of God. So we have got to experience the wonder of God of God. And we will do that through his teaching in the new year. I'm going to start a series starting off in the very first part of the year on January the 4th. I'm going to start a series and I'm going to challenge you on that day to read the scriptures for the next 40 days. I'm also, I realize because the scriptures are intimidating, I'm going to do a Bible study methods class on Sunday afternoon and sometimes it's going to be Sunday evening called in, all right? And so I want to encourage you, if you're intimidated by this book, if you think, I, one of these days I'm going to read the book, or one of these, but I've never done it, and I don't know where to start it, I'm going to literally be teaching you what I do every single day. What I do every week, I observe, I interpret, I apply, I observe, I interpret, I apply. I'm even asking two of my favorite Old Testament and New Testament professors to come in and help teach it. It's going to be an intensive time in the Word Looking for insight, instruction, and inspiration. If you have never learned to study the scriptures, this is an opportunity in a matter of a few weeks to get it. You can go online and you can sign up for that. But listen, here's the, here's the reality. This teachings of God's truth will not make a difference in your life if you're not in it. If you're not in it. That's where he wants to wow you. That's where he wants to amaze you is through the truth of his word. Number two, Christ came to us. That should never stop blowing us away. God 
put on flesh, and he came to us. God could have easily said, I don't want anything to do with you. You've sinned against me. You, you didn't listen to me, Adam and Eve, and all your children didn't listen to me. And you, all you've done is rebelled against me, and I'm just turning you over and let you go where you go. But he didn't. He came to us. See, Christmas is not about God. It's not about heaven. It's not about prayer. It's not about a lot of things that we make it. It's certainly not about all the commercialism. But here's what it is about. It's about God coming to us. And that starts the ball rolling. And that gets it going. Whenever we realize that God put on flesh and he dwelt among us. Now, a lot of people in the first century didn't get this. They didn't embrace this. They didn't accept this. They didn't understand this. The same it is in the 21st century. Jesus one time was with his disciples. He said, hey, who do people say that I am? Peter said, well, it depends on who you ask. Some people say you're, uh, some people say you're John the Baptist. Uh, others say you're Elijah. Other people say you're Jeremiah. Other people say you're another prophet. They're, they're all confused about who you are. Well, the same in our day and age. We're not much better. But let me tell you this. The demons don't wonder. When you look at this passage and you find this miracle begin to take place in verse 23, you find that immediately after he was in the synagogue, a man of the unclean spirit cried out. He knew exactly who Jesus was. Even though he was in Capernaum, the northern side of Israel, on the north side of the banks of, uh, of the Sea of Galilee, what does he say? You are Jesus of Nazareth. You're from the south side. You're from Nazareth. I know who you are, Jesus. You are that man from Nazareth. But not only are you a man from Nazareth. Notice the next thing he said. Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, there's some of you in this room today. You're not into the Jesus thing, and I get it. You're still trying to figure Jesus out. But let me just tell you this. The demons of hell know who he is. He is the Son of God. They know who he is. They know where he came from. There's no ambiguity. There's no doubting. There's no wondering. There's no he's a prophet. He's a good man. He's a good teacher. He's a good physician. No, 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 no. He is the Holy One of God. This is not one time in the Gospels. This occurs again and again and again in the Gospels. This is the point I'm trying to make is that demons of hell understand who Jesus is. In this day and age, I begin to wonder that he's just a good example to many. In Isaiah 7, 14, back to Isaiah, it said, Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. God, again, came to us. Listen, don't lose the wonder of that. Don't lose the wonder of Jesus coming to us. And if you, if you go to Hinduism, if you go to, if you go to Mormonism, they'll tell you that if you live a good life long enough in the right way, and they have their own different varying doctrines, but Mormonism, Hinduism will tell you ultimately you will become God. You will become like God. You talk to a Muslim or even some liturgical Christianity, Christian faiths, they'll tell you that if you're good enough and you say enough prayers and you do enough good deeds and you make God happy, then you'll be accepted. And I want to tell you all along that God initiated this thing. He came to us. 
And then he said in John 1.12, it says in John 1.12, it says, to as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become his children. See, here, here is a moment, here's a statement that I would love to just light up this nation, light up this world, light up your social media connections. I would want this to be be the, 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 uh, the theme of what we say from this point forward. Christmas is a celebration of Christ coming to us so that we could go with him. And man, tweet it. Let it be known. Let it be out there. Let, let, let that be the mantra of your statement that, listen, I am in awe and in wonder and awestruck by a wonderful Savior who came to me so that I could go with him. Came to me so that I could go with him. He initiated the relationship. Don't lose the wonder. Don't lose the wonder. Don't lose the wonder of his teaching. Don't lose the wonder of his presence, that he came. Even the demons of hell recognize who he is. Thirdly, Christ touches lives and makes them whole. And the wonder of that should never be lost. When God reached in and he touched this man with a demon, he cast this demon out. You can read it right there with me in verse 25 and 27. He touches him spiritually. He touches him emotionally. He touches him physically. And Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him, crying out with a loud voice, came out. And they were all, what's the word? Amazed. There's wonder again. There's amazement again. There's astonishment again. There's a breathtaking moment again. They lose their composure again because he begins to make lives whole. He begins to take out the broken pieces and the broken spirit inside of him and makes him whole. But Jesus does this throughout his ministry. 36 different miracles. He calms the storm in Matthew 8, verse 27, and men marvel. He heals the paralytic man, and they were afraid and glorified God and had given him such authority in Matthew 9. He cast out demons again in Matthew 9, 33. And when the demon and the mute and the crowds marveled, saying, Never has, was anything like this seen in Israel. Again, notice the wonder, the amazement. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be? the son of David, in Matthew 12, 23, whenever the blind mute is healed. And then by the Sea of Galilee, there's a whole litany of miracles that he performs. And, and the crowd wondered, it said. The crowd wondered, and they saw the mute speaking and the crippled hell, healthy and the lame walking and the blind seeing, and they glorify God of Israel. I love God when he does miracles. And I have seen and, and, and witnessed God do some miracles in marriages and miracles in health and miracles in people's lives. And a life principle for you is we got to believe in miracles, but we trust in Jesus. Don't ever get those reversed. Don't ever get those reversed. And let me tell you the greatest miracle, the greatest work that I see in people's lives is, is not whenever a, a lame man walks again or a deaf man can hear we see that in hospitals all the time. That's, that's God at work. God defying the laws of, of what's happened in someone's body. But what's really beautiful is when God takes a person 
who's walked away from him. And he restores him. And he brings him back. And he awakens his soul. And he puts him on a new trajectory. And he breathes life into his life again. And what was lost for 25 years from wandering and pursuing and doing and doing it without God. And he awakens that soul again. The past couple of years, Monty and I have caught up and shared a a ton with each other. And I went back through about nine months worth of text. And I asked Monty, can I share this text with everyone? And and again, he had no clue back in January, February when he sent this to me that I'd be sharing it on stage. (laughs) Again, with his permission, uh, I must say. But this is what it says. It seems like beating a dead horse, but I'm so happy with my soul. I was thinking about my knee and and body and his knee. He recently had knee surgery and and how all that's going to conk out someday. But we always ask people generically, how do you feel? How are you feeling today? Maybe we should be asking them, how's your soul today? Love my church, love my body life group, love my pastor, love my family, love my God. At this point, I honestly just tell the devil to bring it on because he can't get my soul. Awesome feeling in the last year and a half has been a soul awakening. My question to you, when was the last time there was a soul awakening in you? Have you lost the wonder Have you lost the amazement of Jesus Christ in your life? I hope this Christmas season is less about stuff and trees and tinsel and trips and meals and more about the sheer wonder, the sheer amazement of a wonderful Savior in Jesus Christ. I hope he will awaken your spirit. I hope that you will stand and walk and live in amazement of him again and again each and every day of your life. That every time you open this book and every time you move out into the world and and every time you pray over someone, you go into it expecting amazing works of God because he is an amazing, wonderful God. And I hope today begins that awakening in you. Would you stand? Would you sing with us? Would you declare the amazing, wonderful element of who God is in Jesus?